Hey everyone, this is Stephen Mavros, and this is a special edition of Waiting for Babies, recorded live at our launch party on August 9th at WeWork in Northern Liberties in Philadelphia. I was joined on stage by our associate producer, Laura Mullen, and our guests for the evening were Elizabeth Walker and Maria Navani, who are the co-directors of the Art of Infertility, an arts organization that curates innovative and emotionally provocative art exhibitions to portray the realities, pains, and joys of living with infertility. Elizabeth founded the organization back in 2014 after going through a long struggle with infertility, and Maria joined soon after. This is the story of how they got there. Um, So I kind of wanted, first of all, thank you all so much for being here. You guys are fantastic. My family, my friends are here, and it's awesome. So I'm very, very thankful to have with me as our guests. Elizabeth Walker and Maria Novotny, who came all the way from Michigan and Wisconsin to be here. Um, And I'd like to bring Elizabeth up onto the stage now. You just have to turn the microphone on and you can have a seat. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for for having us. So, very excited to be here. Essentially, we are going to go through this like I would normally on the podcast. So I'm going to just ask a lot of questions. We're going to start with basics and kind of work from there. I like to start back in the beginning when you first started trying to get pregnant and trying to conceive, and you got married when you were 26, and you waited a few years before actually starting to try, um, but I know you're a planner, so even before you started physically trying, you already had some books and even had a funny idea of like when your timing should be? Yeah, so um, my husband and I got married, and we knew we didn't want to try to add to our family right away. We were pretty content adjusting to marriage and just doing our thing. And um, I think I was ready probably a couple years before my husband was. And we talk about it pretty regularly. And his solution, because he didn't really feel like making a decision about it, was for me to just decide when I felt the time was right and I would just go off birth control and not tell him. And that he would just be happy Like, just be surprised and happy when it happened. So I didn't think that was a good idea at all. That sounded terrible to me. So um, we didn't go with that plan, but I did. I I started doing some internet research and reading some books and talked to my doctor and took prenatal vitamins and, you know, figured out all the things I needed to do before we would start trying to conceive. So the kind of the last plan was that my favorite tampons were being discontinued. Like they were no longer going to be available. And when I realized this, I thought I better stock up because they're not going to be available anymore. And I bought a couple of cases um, online and had them shipped to my house. And then I thought, okay, well, how long will these last me? Like maybe my plan should be when the tampons are gone, that would be a good time to start trying to have a baby. So I kind of did the math and I told my husband, I I think this is a good plan. And he kind of looked at me like I was completely crazy, but he's like, okay, so that's what happened when the tampons were gone, when the last box was open, it's like, okay, when these are gone, we'll try. I feel like, (laughs) I feel like some women, I feel like some women have kind of a background fear that they're gonna have trouble getting pregnant, but that doesn't sound like it was you. It wasn't at all. I really felt like, Um, I would be some kind of like pregnancy overachiever, like I would just decide to try and it would happen. I think I, in my life, I'm used to being able to set goals and work hard to make, you know, those goals um, reality. And I thought that pregnancy would be the same. And it turned out that it was not at all. So you started tracking your cycle and you started doing that for like about six months or so. Mm and you started noticing that something was a little off. I did, and I figured, you know, from my research, I knew that it could take some time um, going off birth control before my cycles would regulate. But it was pretty clear from charting that my charts were all over the place, and they're supposed to kind of follow this nice, pretty, steady path, and then spike, and then stay up, and mine didn't, none of that. They were just kind of all over the place. So um, I knew pretty soon that something was was wrong. It didn't feel right to me. Um, and also the time between um, ovulation and my next period started, or the luteal phase, um, was shorter than it should be. So um, it, I would start my period before any potential embryo that had been um, created would have time to implant, essentially. So I feel like right around the time that you were maybe thinking or contemplating about finding a specialist or at least seeing your GYN, life kind of took a little bit of a turn on you. And 
your sister-in-law got sick. Yeah. And suddenly you found yourself thrust into parenthood. Exactly. So my sister-in-law got sick and I remember when my, I was out of town visiting my sister and my husband called and said, Shelly says she's dying. And I was like, that's completely ridiculous. Shelly's not dying. Like, she's being completely dramatic. She was always very dramatic anyway. And I was like, whatever, it's fine. I'll come back from my vacation. We'll figure this out. She's not dying. Um, that was Halloween. And um, by her birthday on December 1st, she was essentially in a medically induced coma. <laughs> um, so Shelley was right, unfortunately. And um, she had just gotten divorced and her hus ex-husband worked midnight. So um, with their 50-50 custody split, the girls, she had three young girls who were just four, six, and nine at the time. Um, came to live with us on her days along with their dog. So we went from being this, you know, couple carefree with a couple cats to um, parenting and having a dog overnight. And while that was a horrible, horrible circumstance, it, it was still is one of the best experiences in my life, having the girls in the house for those months and parenting them. And, and doing all the things that I long to do as a parent, you know, tell them to brush their teeth and comforting them after a nightmare and all those things, the small things that are so important to me. How long, so they leave, and how long did it take for you guys to get back to it? Like, did that make you want to pause or did that make you want to keep trying more? Yeah, so Shelly um, ended up dying and um, the girls ended up moving uh, to Minnesota, which is about 600 miles from where we live in Michigan. So, um, it was completely devastating. Not only was my sister-in-law gone, the girls were gone, um, I couldn't get pregnant. Um, and a lot of people's solution for me to deal with my grief was, um, oh, well, just, just have a baby. Like, you just need to have a baby of your own and it'll be a happy thing. And they didn't know that we are, we'd been struggling, um, that we'd been trying to conceive for, at this time, already um, uh, at least a full year. Um, and it was, it was a struggle. So we needed to take, take some time from that to regroup and grieve and figure things out. So it was about two years into dealing with infertility that we finally did go and get tested. You were, you know, you were basically dealing with the grief of all of it. You were dealing with the grief of infertility. You were dealing with the grief of losing your sister-in-law and losing your, the girls, essentially. Mm -hmm. So you make it to a fertility specialist and that they come up with ideas? Did they have a plan for you? Was there, um, it sounds like you guys went kind of into treatment. You started doing um, some basic medications like clomiphene, and then you started doing inseminations. Mm -hmm. What happened? Yeah, so I started off with my gynecologist. Again, I probably would have gone to a specialist sooner, but we were still kind of recovering. So I did um, five cycles of clomid. Um, which um, was hopefully going to make my ovulation stronger because my ovulation was weak. It was way weak. It was not going to result in a baby. So the hope was that if I went on this medication, we'd get my, um, my ovulation date moving sooner in my cycle instead of later and make it a stronger, um, better cycle. Did and it work for you? It did not work. Mm. Um, so my doctor really wanted us to try six times, but I was like, it's been five, it's not gonna happen, let's just move on to the next step. By that time we were ready to go see a specialist, so we moved on to a reproductive endocrinologist and tried some inner uterine inseminations, intrauterine inseminations, with um, a hybrid cycle. So we were, I was taking um, oral medications along with injectable medications. How did you do with the hormones and all the medications? I honestly didn't have a problem. I think I was pretty easygoing, and uh, we did talk and confirm that with my husband a couple of weeks ago. He said I was always okay. Um, so really, I felt like it wasn't a big deal. I was gonna say, husbands don't always say that, but I usually just tell them to shut up. Yeah. So I really felt like it really wasn't that much of a problem for me, being on the medications. Right, but you were also dealing with other things, and there was, 
not only the mental cost of using these hormones, but there was a physical cost for you. Right. So I um, was diagnosed with fibromyalgia about the same time I was diagnosed with infertility. Um, and it's a central sensitization disorder, which basically means like all of your signals are on overdrive. So any pain signal is amplified, any, um, any of your senses are amplified. So um, I was dealing with a lot of chronic pain and fatigue. And the solution to deal with that was to start taking some medications that I could not take because I was trying to get pregnant. So I couldn't take the medication to make me feel better, but I needed these other medications to try to get me pregnant, and those medications were making me feel worse. So it was kind of this vicious cycle of dealing with pain and not getting pregnant and just trying to manage all of that. Now you had one fun coping mechanism, which is that, you know, this thing takes time. Every time you try a cycle, it's a month. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the month, when you get your period, it can be devastating. And you had a little trick that you used. Yeah, it worked okay for a while, but, but I would go, every time my, my period started, I would go shopping and I would buy a new piece of clothing. Um, and usually it was a top because I didn't want to buy pants because the goal was that I'd be pregnant and I wouldn't be able to fit into my pants. But a sweater might give you a little more time, maybe you could wear it for the first trimester. So I would go and buy usually a new sweater because it was winter at the time when I started doing this. And soon my, my um, drawers were just overflowing with sweaters. There were just too many clothes to contain. Um, but I did find it was helpful because it was kind of like my reward for failing every month um, in some ways and giving me something to look forward to. If I didn't have a baby, at least I would look cute in my new sweater, I guess. Whatever. So at this point, did they start talking about moving on and going to IVF? Yeah, um, after we finished the four IUIs, the next step would be IVF. Um, my doctor did, rec did say that if I wanted to, we could do an exploratory laparoscopy um, to do a, a surgery and look around and check things out before we moved on to IVF. Um, and I felt for me that would give me the most information to make a decision about moving forward and possibly eliminate any problems that could exist that might affect the IVF in a negative way. Um, so before moving on to IVF, I wanted to do that. Did they find anything with the exploratory surgery? They did. Um, they confirmed that I had endometriosis, which can also um, uh, cause problems with conceiving and um, found a couple of polyps. But basically, it was the endometriosis and cleaned that out and didn't find any other issues. So with everything cleaned up and ready to go um, and the thought that I would move on to IVF um, when I was ready, wasn't quite ready at that time, but that would be the next step if we decided to move on. Now, you were in recovery for a few weeks from the surgery. Mm -hmm. Normally, it can take like a week or two for people to kind of get back on their feet. Um, you seem like you had a unique way to deal with that and, and to get you through the time. Yeah, so normally um, I would have been off for a week from work, but because of my, fibro, my fibromyalgia, my um, doctor wanted to give me more time to recover. So I was off work for three weeks and home, and you know you start to feel better, but you can't do anything still, and it's kind of frustrating. So I really felt like I needed something to do, and my solution for that was to go and buy some art supplies, and um, so I had my husband drive me to the art supply store because I couldn't drive that. And um, I picked up some papers and some canvases and some paints and thought I'll just go home and like make something. So I took everything home and I started ripping up paper and decoupaging it onto canvas and painting and like using beads. And it was just a really great release for me because it just felt like something I could do when I was waiting and it was helpful. And it feels really good to rip up paper. I highly recommend ripping up paper. So was it at this point that you had an idea that art would be a good thing to keep doing or to help other people do? Yeah, when I made that first piece, it kind of became um, something that, like an extra tool I had in my toolbox. I tried to rely on a bunch of different tools throughout dealing with infertility. So it was a new tool I had. And I really felt while dealing with infertility that it's so invisible. You know, it was impacting me in such a huge way. It was something that was rocking my world and, and consuming my every thought, but there was nothing that was showing that on the outside. There was no way to, to show that. And I felt that art was a way that I could create something that would be tangible and that would be something that was physical proof 
of my infertility experience. And um, at first it was just kind of for myself and then I realized it could be a really great tool for um, sharing with my friends and family to kind of give them a clue as to what was going on in my life too. So I just started creating some pieces around my, my experience. At this point, you're about to go through IVF and they put you on hormones, you do all the injectable medications, they basically take your ovaries and turn them from peas to, you know, golf balls. And they go in, they take the follic, they take the eggs out, and that is a surgical procedure. Like basically you're under anesthesia, they're taking a needle, kind of piercing through the vaginal wall. Fun. And, yeah. Sounds like a good time, right? Mm -hmm. um, and most of the time people go home and lay on the couch for a day, maybe two days, and are okay, but you didn't necessarily have that happen. No, that did not happen to me. Um, <laughs> I, I left and I was feeling okay. I remember waking up from anesthesia and saying like, yeah, this was so easy, I could do that again, no problem. Um, but we actually had decided already that we were only going to do one, one IVF cycle, even though we knew that wasn't the best, you know, like a recommended plan because it's likely not to succeed in one cycle. For our family, we felt like it was the best fit. Um, so we had already decided that we would do one cycle and any um, embryos that resulted from the cycle, we would transfer and then our path, at least to genetic parenthood, would be done. Um, so we had already decided one was it, um, but I was feeling pretty good. Um, however, as the day wore on, I was feeling really um, like a lot of increased pressure and a lot of pain, and I thought it was just like gas, because they can say that can be a problem after the procedure. Um, but it was pretty clear by the evening that that was not the case. And I ended up in the ER <laughs> um, with internal bleeding and ovarian, ovarian torsion. Um, and Do you want to explain what, the no, what an ovarian torsion is? Yeah, so basically like your, your ovaries here and the the tubes here and it's supposed to be in a certain spot and it just kind of like all twists around and like flops over. So it's, well, that's what I envisioned. Like I'm a visual person. Like in my mind, my ovary was like flopped over. Well, probably because my doctor also said, she said um, later because they had to go in and remove the blood and, and by that point, actually my ovary had gone back into the right position. Um, but she said there was one, one follicle that was kind of bigger and it was kind of flopped over. So that's probably, I mean, I don't I'm know, wrong. maybe no. she didn't say that. I was recovering, who knows? I was pretty drugged and had been in a lot of pain, so. How long did it take to, like, did the pain go away immediately or were you? Um, the, the really severe pain went away as soon as the surgery was over, but it was a pretty rough recovery yeah. um, because my stomach was so enlarged from all of the, the blood that was in my abdomen that I had a lot of bruising and it took me a really long time to recover from that. Right. Now, just so everyone has an idea, this is not a normal thing that happens around IVF. This is not an normal. extremely rare complication. <laughs> um, you just happen to have all the love. Yeah, very lucky. Yeah. Um, so how long after that did, did you feel like you were actually ready to go to the next step of IVF where they actually put the embryos Yeah, so I mean, in? they retrieved the eggs and they created the embryos and we had um, three beautiful uh, day five blastocysts that were gorgeous and wonderful. Um, we ended up doing a transfer a couple months later so we didn't have to wait too long, just gave me a couple months to recover and um, transferred two of our three embryos and I surprisingly got pregnant. I was not at all prepared to get pregnant because that had never happened before. I had never seen a positive test. Um, I never, I took, actually I took more pregnancy tests when I was on birth control than I did when I was trying to conceive because I was, I thought it like when- You mean when you were younger and you were trying not to get pregnant? Yeah, even when I was married and trying not to get pregnant, I was like always afraid I would be one of those people who got pregnant and didn't know. And so I would get freaked out and buy tests every now and then and be relieved like, okay, I'm, I'm not pregnant. So I actually took more tests before I tried to, you know, have a baby than I did after, um, if that came out right. Um, so my husband and I were shocked that it was actually positive and I had my beta the next day which is the blood test to confirm pregnancy and it was confirmed um, my numbers were at a 30 which were low but not crazy crazy low so we just were gonna wait for the next test and see how things went and hopefully they would increase and double and unfortunately that wasn't the case um, when I had my next blood draw the numbers had gone down so it was um, clear at that point that the pregnancy was ending and 
sometimes what they do afterward is kind of to go in and explore basically to see how the uterus is doing after a miscarriage. Um, and for you, it sounds like something they found things that made it even harder. So I had uh, my, my hysteroscopy, which was to check out my uterus to make sure I was good to go for my next transfer, um, to transfer the final embryo. And at that point, we found out um, that uh, when my doctor was looking around the screen, she was like, oh, I'm surprised to see this. And I was like, oh, what is it? You're surprised. That doesn't seem like a good, good thing. Um, but it was um, leftover products of con conception was essentially uh, pregnancy tissue. So um, my doctor was surprised. She said, oh, you must have been a little further along than we thought you were. Here's this leftover tissue. And then she kind of rounded the corner, and there was more. So it was not 100% evident, but likely I asked, you know, does the fact that there's tissue in two different spots in my uterus mean that it was twins, that actually both embryos implanted? And she said, well, we can't say 100%, but yes, likely that is the case. And to me, seeing that on the screen just totally rocked me. Just having that visual, like it's burned into my memory, seeing what that looked like. And from there, I really felt like I needed to take time and recover. So I went home and I told my husband, um, you know, we can either stop treatment totally altogether and be done, or I need to take a break. So we ended up taking a break. And during that break, you, um, you had been doing art before. Mm -hmm. And I think at that point, you kind of had an idea for turning that art into something more um, and created what sounds like you were creating enough art to actually show and to create an exhibition. Yeah, I was making more and more pieces, especially around the miscarriage and other things that had happened, and um, knew from uh, starting to attend a support group that there were some other people doing the same thing. So I reached out to a local museum where I live um, in Jackson, Michigan, called Ellis Art Museum, and asked if they would be interested in doing an infertility art exhibit. The idea being that it would contain artwork created by people at different stages of their journey, along with some portraits and interviews um, to explain uh, what the infertility experience is about. And they said yes, so we went ahead and moved forward with that. Did that help a lot just in terms of give you something to look forward to? Did that make you want to go back in and keep treating? Like, how did that? Um, I really felt like I needed some time, so we took, we took a whole year off. And then um, when we, well, almost a year. And when we went back, um, actually transferred the last embryo the month before the exhibit opened. Um, and that final transfer was unsuccessful. So at that point, um, you know, I was putting the exhibit together and really at a time when I wanted to curl up and curl on my couch and not talk to anyone, I had to like curate this exhibit and collect artwork and like talk to people and it was really horrible. But in the end, it was really the best, best thing I could have been doing at that time. So you brought up um, that you had a support group mm -hmm. and what was, was that something you organized or was that something that was organized um, outside? It was a peer-led support group um, from, by Resolve, the National Infertility Association. And I was uh, initially going to the group and then later hosted when the person who was hosting took over um, or actually needed to leave. So um, I was attending uh, and running support groups and um, had the opportunity to go to Advocacy Day in Washington, D.C., which is an annual event to uh, lobby on Capitol Hill for improvements to infertility legislation that will help people build their families either via treatment or adoption. So I decided to make the trip to DC. Was there, what was, what was about Advocacy Day that really spoke to you? Like why did you wanna advocate or why did you wanna? I just felt like, you know, through doing the art and doing the community event, I just felt like there was so much more that I could be doing. I really just wanted to be in the community once I was comfortable talking about my own experience through creating art around it and joining with other people and kind of figuring out what infertility meant to me um, I wanted to, to raise awareness in other people and just make it, you know, kind of bring it out of the shadows so it's not so, so closeted and so, so isolating. So we're going to take a pause here and switch over. And I'm going to bring up Laura Mullen and Maria Novotny. I think our chairs will go over. So I'm going to assume um, that compared to the majority of the people here in this room, um, you and your husband actually met in high school. Yeah. 
Uh, I met my husband when we were both 15, um, so I've known him for now a little bit more than my whole life. Um, and trust me, like, I'm not really always proud of being high school sweethearts. Like, it's like a secret thing. I'm like, yeah, we're high school sweethearts. It's kind of like, I never thought I would be that person, to be honest with you, because he was just this annoying 15-year-old boy at the time. But the kind of the joke that it's been around in my family a little bit has been, um, when I turned 18, um, my parents came home from their anniversary and told my sisters and I that they were pregnant um, and that they were gonna have a baby. So there's an 18-year-old difference between me and my little brother, um, and my husband kind of grew up seeing my mother pregnant and then the birth of my brother and everything like that. Um, and we both come from really large families. So Kevin is a large Catholic family. He's the oldest of four. even um, through college, and then once we got married. Um, and now Kevin and I kind of joke about it with our families, like they really wish, and also I think prayed way too hard that they made us infertile. So <laughs> we kind of jab that in sometimes, and we're like, oh, you guys should do something else, and you know, try and figure out your fertility a little bit more. So it's kind of a fun little joke we do. Yeah. Um, and so at what age did you all get married? We got married when we were um, 24 years old. So pretty much right out of college. And when we got married, um, essentially my husband took a new job. We were both from Wisconsin, and it moved us to Michigan. So at that time, um, we decided to buy a house. Um, we made sure that the house had multiple rooms, because really our plan was right away to try and get pregnant. That was something that we kind of grew up. It was part of our culture, like I said. Um, his parents got married, they had kids right away. My parents got married, they had kids right away. That was kind of something we were supposed to do. And so um, how long were you all trying to get pregnant until you realized that you should seek medical advice? Yeah, so like the little bad Catholics we were, we actually tried before we were married. I know my parents will die if they hear this now, <laughs> but we did um, and it was you know, unsuccessful right away. And that actually remember like three months after our wedding, I was like, wow, this is weird that I'm still not pregnant. But we kind of just were like, oh, whatever, we're moving, we'll figure it out. Um, and so about a little bit over a year, we started to think maybe something's up, something's not totally right. And what was the relationship like um, during that first year of marriage and then trying with your husband? Yeah, so actually for the first six months, we lived in a hotel, which was hell. Um, and I honestly feel like if we got through that, we could, that's how we got through infertility. I mean, it was a one bedroom hotel and he was kind of doing this training thing for his job. Um, so that was really hard and stressful. We were trying to get pregnant, nothing was happening. We did not have our own space whatsoever. And then we finally moved and got our house. Um, but it was also really isolating because we moved to this new state, we didn't know anybody, and our families didn't get it. I mean, we didn't even know how to talk to them about this because it was always assumed we would just get knocked up, like that's what would happen. Um, and so it was really kind of scary. And I remember a lot of different times um, just driving back after going to the grocery store and seeing like ladies there in the middle of the day. I was there in the middle of the day, you know, either pregnant or with their kids. And I would just be really devastated and upset. And I remember one time I actually came home and I left all the groceries in the car and Kevin was in the kitchen. And I went to the bathroom quickly and I got my period. And I came out and I literally just collapsed on the floor and just started crying and bawling and was so upset that my body couldn't work and was not doing what I had always wanted it to do. Um, and I actually ended up out of that experience creating um, a piece that's over there called The House um, that kind of talks a little bit more about how we bought this house and how I had always had um, images of this extra bedroom being this baby's bedroom and having Kevin come home and make dinner and we had a little playroom actually set up off to the kitchen and not knowing anymore what that house would mean for us and what that would mean for us especially living um, in a place that's totally new um, and we didn't really have anyone to go to or talk to about. 
So at the age of 25, you then went to a fertility clinic? What was that like? Yeah, so around that time, actually, I think right after I had this like little breakdown, um, Kevin was like, we need to go make an appointment. So we actually started going to the gynecologist at first. Um, throughout, like maybe midway when we were trying to get pregnant, I was using an ovulation test. Um, everything was coming back fine. I was getting my period nearly like on the day all the time. Um, Kevin, when we went to the gynecologist, they set him up with a urologist appointment um, and he got his sperm tested. Everything came back for that pretty inconclusive. So then we were recommended to go to our local fertility clinic. Um, and we did that. And I remember in that consultation, it was pretty much recommended that because I was ovulating so regularly on time and because of his sperm test being inconclusive, that we should move right away to IUI. Um, intrauterine insemination, which we just learned about. Um, so from that experience, we kind of left that meeting. Um, and I remember driving back to our house. It was only about 10 minutes. And I remember thinking, it was quiet right away, if I should talk to him about what he was thinking. We were kind of just trying to process what that actually meant to do IUI. Um, and without even like going through Clomid or hormonal treatments or anything like that. And I think right away I said, I don't want to do that. And he looked at me and he said, oh good, I don't want to do it either. And I was like, oh God, thank God he feels that way. Um, for us, I think it was just like we were only been married for about a year and a half. We had always thought that this is what it was going to be. And we now didn't know what our life was going to be like what we wanted to do with it. Um, and even if treatment was right, um, we were never really anti-treatment. We just didn't know if that's what we wanted to do. And we just didn't feel like at 25, we could make that decision. So we kind of decided to just walk away from that at that moment. And so I feel like a lot of people have a difficult time understanding that. So when you tell people that you are not gonna go through treatment, um, they don't really know what to say. Yeah. Was the, um, have you had many situations with family or friends, strangers, and how they react? Yeah, I mean, um, that's something that continually comes up. Um, so we put the pause on treatment, and we have still put the pause on treatment. We haven't really done anything about it. Um, and instead, we really tried to work on ourselves and on our relationship with each other, and also just figure out, I mean, honestly, do we still want to be married to each other? I mean, we got married to have a family, so what does this mean now? Um, and so explaining that to other people has been challenging. Um, recently, in fact, we had recently told one of our really good family friends that we were maybe thinking kind of about adoption. And immediately what they said was, oh, that's so great, honey. You know, you'll finally know what it's like to be a parent. You know, I know you guys think you're great dog parents, but to parent a kid, it's just something totally different. And we came, Kevin, we came home and Kevin was like, I know she means well, but gosh, that really hurts. And so those comments still really hurt in lots of different ways. Um, being the oldest of children on both sides of the family, I mean, my brother's 12. He comes up with us. He has like little getaways. In lots of ways, we feel like we're raising him, um, especially with my parents being older. We know that we're going to be involved in his lives very differently um, when they get older as well. And he's, my husband's also a guardian of one of my cousins who has um, special needs. And so we're also being parents in different ways. And so sometimes it gets difficult to kind of translate the ways in which parenting is not always visible, but it, alternative parenting really does exist. You mentioned the word treatment and having an issue with foregoing treatment. What's part of that word that doesn't sit well with you? Yeah. I'm not anti-treatment, and I think I said that a little bit. I mean, and neither is my husband. Um, I think for us more so, a lot of the narratives around infertility are focused around infertility treatment, what treatment people did, how people um, went through and really struggled, tried to beat their infertility in lots of different ways. And for us, I think that does a disservice to really treating the other issues that kind of surround the experience of infertility itself. Um, we really felt like our marriage had to be a lot stronger. And we actually kind of thought it was a good thing not to necessarily be able to get pregnant right away. Um, because if we brought a kid into everything, it might have just 
collapsed some things. And instead, it gave us a chance to really work on what we wanted and build a new foundation. Um, but I think treatment also has some connotations where when we go and we do legislation, there's a lot of legislation around treatment and advocating for treatment. And while that's great um, and that work needs to be done, sometimes um, it doesn't really make space or options for other sources of resolving your infertility. So the idea that you can choose being child-free, and that's a valid and legitimate choice that should be recognized, or adoption, or surrogacy, or other forms of family building. So during this time, um of not going through treatment, you kind of found it as a time to rediscover yourself and to understand now where you are going um, with your life. What was that like? Yeah, so like I said, we stopped and we still kind of stopped. We're in this like weird still pause kind of limbo phase, but we decided to um, work on our careers and kind of go full forward than that. So I actually ended up enrolling um, in graduate school and my first initial idea was that I was going to go and learn how to be um, a teacher and teach uh, writing at a college level. So I went and I got my master's and during that time my whole plan was kind of like to secretly still get pregnant. Like I still didn't believe that I couldn't get pregnant so I was just going to go for it without you know thinking about it like that. Um, two years passed and I was still not pregnant. And then there was this option, what do we do? Should we just stop now? Maybe we can go and do treatment and you can, I can teach or do I do something else? Um, and around this time, I was starting to do a lot of reading. Um, I was in a queer like theory type of class and I was making a lot of connections between the ways in which your body kind of becomes reoriented. Um, there's a lot of reorientation scholarship linked with queer scholarship and the ways in which I felt my own body and my own um, like sexuality be even being reoriented because of my infertility. Um, and because of that, I decided maybe I want to continue this and think a little bit more about other ways that people are composing new meanings for their bodies um, through infertility experiences. So I decided to enroll and get my PhD, um, doing something around what I was trying to call rhetorics of infertility, which took me a while to figure out, but we'll get to that part later, I'm sure, yeah. And then, um, so during this time, excuse me, you and your husband were also trying to look for a community, like a support group or, um, families and couples in the area. Yeah, so that was part of taking this break was to not figure out how to fix us, but to figure out how to build a community and fix this marriage that we had together. So we decided um, there wasn't a support group in our area to run a couple support group. Now this is kind of different. Most support groups, the ones that Liz went to um, and also ran were mainly focused towards women. Um, but we really wanted a space where we could meet and network other people and really understand what they were choosing, how they were going through different options, and kind of as a way to figure out maybe what we wanted to do. Um, so we started it, and it was great. Um, couples came. Um, we developed great friendships with them. But slowly, um, it got to be a little bit of a challenge because um, most people would be doing treatment, and then it was kind of awkward to figure out how I could be a leader of a group that, of someone who never did treatment herself. Um, so that was a little bit difficult and a little bit of a challenge, but we got through it um, by kind of networking and allowing other people to come in and talk to that group. And then, so what brought you and your husband then to go to Washington? Yeah, that was a lot of what brought us to Washington, is that I felt like we were running this group and we needed to figure out how it is that we could connect them to other people who had similar stories because we didn't have those stories. So we decided that we would go and try and figure out um, if there were other people that people in our group could talk to. Um, and so that's how we kind of ended up in DC. Hey everybody again. Um, so you guys met in DC at day. Advocacy Day for at Resolve. Advocacy day. So tell me about that. Yeah, so um, I traveled with a friend of mine from my support group and um, I had heard rumors about Kevin and Maria, these people on the west side of Michigan who are running the support group. Um, but I didn't know that they were gonna be at Advocacy Day or not and it turned out that they were. Um, and we all met up and I pretty quickly connected with Maria. We seem to have a lot in common talking we realized that we at one point in our infertility journeys both like chopped off all of our hair and I mean like I shaved my head um, 
I, it was a part of infertility and part of grieving the loss of my sister-in-law. I just felt like I needed some outside present, like, again, a visual representation that I had changed and I was different. And it was the same for Maria in, in similar way. So uh, we connected on that and the fact that we were both um, using creative outlets for our infertility journeys. And um, it was really pretty incredible that we met up in DC. Yeah, and um, when I met Liz, oh, this mic doesn't like me. Um, when I met Liz, I was really, like I said, looking for someone to kind of be um, a support system for me. Being a support leader yourself, lots of times you think, oh, they don't need their own support systems. Um, but I really connected with Liz with everything she was going through with running her own support groups. And then um, through all the creative outlets that she was ex exploring through art, I was doing it through creative writing, and we just kind of clicked. So this was around the same time that you had your art exhibition back in Michigan. And you, after Advocacy Day, there was still a little bit of time, you actually were able to get there, and you got to see this artwork. But what, what kept you guys coming back to each other? Like, what kept you guys wanting to do more? Yeah, I mean, so I really enjoyed Advocacy Day, but I was kind of more curious after leaving there to learn more about who this girl was in Jackson, Michigan, which if you don't really know Jackson, Michigan, it's like a place you drive through to either go to Detroit or go to Lansing. You don't really stop in Jackson. It's not really a go-to location. <laughs> so, but here, lo and behold, there's this person doing this huge art exhibit featuring like over 50 pieces of art um, and stories that she collected while like mourning the loss of her failed cycles and failed treatment. So what basically happened is that at that same time, I decided finally, like the day, the last, last day, I was going to go to that exhibit. So it's about like a two-hour drive for me. So I scheduled it in, and then I decided, okay, well, then I should maybe try and also meet with her. So I was made it like at about 4 o'clock. The exhibit closed at 5. Um, was totally blown away, totally. And then I think around 5.30 or so, I went to meet Liz for coffee to see and actually have her participate in an interview that I was doing um, as part of an oral history methodology class tied to my PhD program, and she'll take it from there. So we meet for coffee, and Marie was pretty much like, well, what are you going to do now? The exhibit's over. And I was like, yeah, I know the exhibit's over. And I really feel like it was effective in not only, like my main goal at first was educating my community and bringing awareness to my community. But what was really amazing about the experience was the way that people who have infertility or dealing with infertility use the exhibit, whether they participated as an artist or as a person who was interviewed or not, use the exhibit as a way to talk to their families about the experiences of infertility. So I was really amazed by that. I don't know why like that should have made sense to me, I guess, but it was not at all clear. Um, so I, I said to Maria, I don't know, like it seems like this is a really great thing and I'd like to continue doing it, but I don't really know how. But it was just lucky that Maria at the exact same time was wanting to continue or start actually developing a methodology for collecting oral histories and what would this look like and so we were like okay hey well maybe this is something we can do together so um, Maria was basically at that point like I'm gonna make this my, the topic of my, of my dissertation and we can work together on this and it seemed like a good fit so we just started to do it so now how did you take that conversation and turn it into an organization that has essentially grown in scope and taken it out of Michigan and gone to travel? Yeah, so I think actually during that interview, oh god, that interview, um, I'm not going to look at you. Um, I asked Liz a question, something about diversity, and do you remember what I asked? She didn't even have to say it. She looked at me and she said, well, what about, and I said, diversity because the first exhibit was very much what we hear and see in the media a lot of times not so much now but definitely you know five or six years ago was you know the heterosexual white couple or the woman who waited too long in quotes to start start her family which is also a term i hate um, because i think a family of two is a family um but um, we just were talking about that and I said, she's like, you should just go to California 
And I said, yeah, why don't I just go to California? So I decided to go to California. And it happened uh, to be that Resolve has, uh, they have these walks of hope that are fundraising walks to raise money for infertility. So I made arrangements to go out to California and spend about 10 days um, between Northern and, Calif Northern and Southern California um, collecting stories and did a little pop-up exhibit at the walks and it was a really great experience. Yeah, and when she came back, I said, so, how was it? At this time, we were meeting like in a dorm cafeteria after I was done teaching and she was done from work. Um, and she said it was great. Like, I met so many people. They had such great stories. I want to go back. And I said, that's great, but we have no money right now. So what happened is that we've actually found a medical humanities conference um, that was in Iowa. And we decided to go and kind of bring the exhibit there and share some stories. Um, and that was a great kind of moment where we could figure out a way that I could wrap that into my dissertation research. And that could also be another way that, that that project could continue exhibiting and sharing stories. So now this has grown tremendously and you guys have been doing it for the last couple of years and how I met the two of you was even I had heard about it because you had brought this exhibit to Seattle. And I was at a conference in Vancouver and had heard about this and I was like, what am I doing? I need to go check this out. And I drove down, left the conference a day early, which I would do anyway, acupuncture conferences are not my thing. Um, and drove down just to see and check it out. and. You guys have really essentially given birth to something. And I feel like that's kind of a weird thing to say, but at the same time, like you guys have been trying to conceive for so long and you kind of did. Um, one of the interesting questions that always comes to my mind is like, how do your husbands feel about that? Yeah, like, yeah. So we definitely feel like this is something that we conceived. You know, we can't create a baby, but we created our baby nonprofit. I call it our, we're co parenting our baby nonprofit. Um, so that's definitely been something that's been amazing for us um, because we have this really close friendship out of this and we work so closely together and it's been amazing for us. Yeah, I mean, um, Elizabeth and I are sometimes asked, like, can you imagine, like, not knowing each other? And immediately we're like, no, there's no way. We were totally brought together, and going through our experiences together has been invaluable. But that does create, uh, not problems, but just tension sometimes with husbands, because basically we're here because of them, too. I mean, our infertility our infertility experiences aren't just because of us. Um, they're kind of co-experiences in some ways. And so it's always kind of fun to say, hey, uh, we're going to go to Philadelphia now, just Liz and I, and do this podcast. See, I, literally, I just moved yesterday. And I said, see, uh, maybe you can unpack my office. And I just got a text that he did that. So he's been a great, supportive husband. Liz is uh, Liz has a very great supportive husband as well, but you know, we just try to make sure we can bring them once in a while. Yeah, we always invite them. We always invite them. That's true. <laughs> but they are very supportive, and we couldn't do it without them. Um, there's no way we could do this, and it's been so important to our healing. I feel like this without this, I honestly don't know if I would still be married or still be at all coping because it's been that important to me. Um, one of the things we talked about earlier was the word treatment, and I feel like um, there are things about the words that we use around infertility, like it, not only just struggle, but like finding success or battling, or like the same thing we do with cancer these days, where suddenly how strong you fight or how strong you battle cancer is going to have a direct correlation to whether or not you survive, and it just doesn't seem to add up in my mind, and it just seems wrong. Um, Given where the two of you are now, how like how does that make you guys feel? Yeah, I think I used to use those words a lot too. Um, but dealing with infertility has really made me think about the words that we use and how we choose to use them, and that's something we're always very careful um, of and mindful of in the project and the organization is that the words we use matter. Even something as simple as embryo adoption versus embryo donation. And there are people that use it both ways for different reasons. But for us, it's very important that we use donation versus adoption um, for a variety of reasons, legislative, but also just the idea of redefining success. Just because, just, this hates me now too, just because you um, choose another path um, doesn't mean you've given up. 
And I think a lot of times we hear those words, you know, oh, don't stop fighting, don't give up. And it's really okay to do that. You know, sometimes we have physical or financial or emotional limitations that don't allow us to reach the initial goal that we had. And that's completely devastating in so many ways, but it's not the only way to find success after infertility. Is ha you know, having a baby isn't the only way. So we're really interested in looking at the ways um, that we can redefine success and successful outcomes of infertility and also share those with, with others. Um, I think it's a really unique experience that you both have with the support group that you have um, that you've both have been a part of and the arts organization and just all the stories and the people that you meet. And I'm curious if there's ever been um, an issue or a moment of something that you've, um, that has changed your mind. Like after talking to someone or after seeing one of their art pieces, um, has, have any of those moments influenced um, a, a change in a decision or a, a change at all? Yeah, and not so much a, a total change in decision, but one of the most inspiring stories that we've collected has been um, the story of a trans teen in California who um, essentially um, was preparing to transition from female to male and went to the doctor's appointment that was supposed to be his first appointment to start testosterone injections. So he was supposed to start that day transitioning and was super excited about it and had done so much work to get to that point. And he sat down in the chair and the nurse kind of like nonchalantly handed him a brochure and said, oh, you might want to think about preserving your fertility and like having some eggs frozen before you do this. Like, um, I'm supposed to get the first injection like now, I can't. So it, it, to us, that was just incredible that no one brought that up to him until that moment. And he ended up choosing to delay starting testosterone in order to have the opportunity to freeze some eggs so that if one day he decided he would like to potentially potentially be a genetic parent, he could have that opportunity. And so we got to know Cole um, and his family um, a couple years ago. And what was really also incredible about his story is that his parents dealt with infertility. And it took them a really long time to, to find him. They actually adopted him. It was a private domestic adoption. And just spending time with them and hearing both of their stories, it really hit home to us the reason why we do this. You know, it affects so many people in so many different ways. And it's so important that these stories are told that we don't hear as often because if, if we don't tell them who is, and I know you, know you are telling them and there are other people telling them, but it's so important that those become the norm and not just you know, the, the unusual story that we hear. So kind of coming back around to a close, you guys have um, a couple of options ahead of you in terms of your path to parenthood or your path to not parenthood, which is now your choice. What are, what are your obstacles? Like, what are the things that are kind of in your way and with helping you make decisions about what to do next? Yeah, I think the path not to parenthood um, is a little bit difficult in terms of that that life choice isn't always supportive or um, always easily acceptable. Um, and I think there's some decisions that we're trying to figure out with that. But also the path not to parenthood is also exciting, I think, for Elizabeth and I as well, because it's a chance to really continue this project, which we really do feel like we're co-parenting and developing and constantly growing. Um, so it's a different choice for parenthood, I would say. Um, and then also, on that other hand, though, choosing parenthood also comes at a cost with this project as well, and figuring out how it is that we can continue traveling if we do have a child with us, or what that means um, on top of the additional stresses we have um, between the project and then a child and then our husbands as well. How do we balance all of that? Um, I think they're just continual life choices. I would say that's the same. I think that there's a lot of stigma still around uh, people who move on, especially or who are who don't have children, especially those who tried and it, you know, supposedly really wanted it and they give up again, choose another path. People, it's much better. Um, but I think that that's that's, although I'm comfortable with that for my family, um, but I feel like 
I kind of have age against me at this point too. I'm going to be 40 in February and I, you know, 10 years ago would have thought it would be completely ridiculous to try to have a baby at 40, I'll be honest. Like, and maybe in 10 years I would think that at 50 it's okay, where now I'm like, no, I don't want that for myself. And I think it's great when people do that if that's right for them, but it's certainly not right for me. So I'm feeling the pressure of time now and making a decision about what to do. And what does that look like, you know, for, for myself, for my, my family of two at home, for my Art of Infertility family, not only um, Maria and Kevin, but all of the extended family that we've made over time. It's been really incredible, and I can't imagine my life any different way. And a friend of mine said um, recently, like, uh, talking about her baby, like, oh, it's, you'll find it's all going to be worth it when it's over. And I felt like it's already it really is already worth it. Like I, I wouldn't change it and I already feel like either way, whether I move forward and, and give treatment one more try or we move on to adoption, um, I feel like I'll be okay either way. There are pros and cons to both and I think we'll find, find our way. So I normally like to end every interview with asking whoever we are speaking to, um, if you could um, like in three to five words, just kind of recap the journey that you've had. Um, how would you explain what you've been through? So I only have one word, um, and it would be reorienting. Um, I had to really reorient myself to happiness and what happiness is for myself. Um, Liz would attest that I was really unhappy for a while, like when I was first going through infertility and actually just accepting that maybe I'm just going to be infertile and that's that and that's going to be my body and I'll never experience pregnancy and that's that's just the path that's laid forward. I was really angry. I was upset and I was not a happy person and it, my marriage wasn't happy because of that. Um, and eventually I think after meeting people, uh, meeting people at Advocacy Day, meeting people through my infertility support group, meeting Liz, meeting the people through the project, I was able to kind of reorient myself to a new definition of happiness and really be okay with the idea that maybe I won't have children, um, maybe I will, but right now I'm happy and that's what really matters. And I miraculously came up with exactly three words and they are access to care. I think that that is the most important thing. Um, it is so much harder. Infertility forces you to make a million decisions every step of the way. There's always something to decide. And if you don't have the access to care that you need to treat your infertility, those decisions are made so much harder. It's not just financial, it's emotional, it's physical. There's so many ways that people run out of resources before they get to a point where they are able to have the family that they want. Or even just if they move forward without, without um, growing their family, just being so exhausted, completely drained by the time it's over. But if we have access to care, to make the decisions that are right for us, that are informed by our doctors, that are recommended, if we can actually have that access to care by having insurance coverage or whatever it is that makes that possible, I think that the journey will be so much easier for everyone. I mean, someone with, with coverage can go to a clinic and have a baby a year old a year later, where it doesn't always happen, of course, but that's a possibility. And without that access to care, you're looking at years, years upon years, essentially. Um, I met a woman the other day who just broke down who said, you know, we've been trying for so long and we can't even afford to get tested to find out what's going on. Going on. So I really feel like that's, those are the three words that I would say. Thank you guys so much. This Thank has you. been wonderful. So I want to thank uh, Elizabeth and Maria for coming all this way just to be here. Um, I have so many people to thank for getting this podcast started. Um, I want to thank them. I want to thank Laura for coming and being on this journey with me. And um, I want to thank my parents and my family um, and my friends who are up at the front here who literally I just would not be here without them. And they have been so tremendously supportive and have listened. and 
You know, one of the reasons that I was sitting in a coffee shop, I was sitting at Joe's in Rittenhouse Square the other day, um, and David walks up to me, and he's got his headphones in, and he's like, Stephen, you're in my ears right now. <laughs> and like, aside from the fact that David's Canadian and is probably more advanced than most guys, like, he's, the, he's a person I never thought I would reach with talking about this and trying to share these stories. And that's so exactly why I'm here and what I'm trying to do. So. I just want to say thank you. Thank you to my staff who are with me all the way and who helped me, and to all of my patients, and to all of the people who have been willing to let us interview them and who are willing to share their stories, because it is their stories, and it's, that's what I'm really trying to get out as much as I can. All right, thank you, guys. Thanks again to Elizabeth and Maria for sharing their story. If you'd like to find out more information on their exhibitions, you can find them online at artofinfertility.org. And if you want to see one of their exhibitions, they'll be coming to Philadelphia for the month of November to the Old City Jewish Art Center. Check out our website at waitingforbabies.com or at Waiting for Babies on Facebook for more info. Thanks to Lauren and Caitlin from Team 624 Communications for providing us with an amazing space. We had so much fun doing this live and seeing everyone's reactions to this story. If you have a story you want to tell and would be interested in being interviewed on stage in your town, reach out to us via the contact form on our site and we'll bring the show to you. We'll be back in a few weeks with another interview into the human side of the world of infertility. Till then, I'm Stephen Mavros. See you next time.